Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast with me, Richard Lee. And me, Sean Kane. This week, we talked to the writer Ben Aronovich about his latest book in the best-selling Rivers of London series. Later in the show, we'll be talking about the long-awaited third instalment in Hilary Mantel's Cromwell trilogy, The Mirror and the Light. Ben Aronovich began his career in screenwriting, writing for TV juggernauts like Casualty and Doctor Who. His fiction is cut from something of the same cloth, with his best-selling Rivers of London series following the adventures of a young officer in the Metropolitan Police who meets a ghost and winds up working for The Folly, a secret branch of the Met that handles the supernatural. When he came to the studio to talk to Sean about the eighth book in the series, False Value, she began by asking him about London and the vital role the city plays in his fiction. I'm a Londoner. Yeah. And so therefore my relationship with London is that I'm a Londoner. That's, that's my relationship with London. And if you're a Londoner, London, you have a different relationship with London than people who have come into London. People who come into London for whatever reason, like yourself, have come in for excitement or work or, or desperation or that London is a kind of a, a screen upon which they project their fears and their hopes and... But if you're a Londoner, it's where you, you went to school. Mm. It's where you, you, know, you went to cinema, your, your first nursery, your first film. Your, I mean, I remember going to see Robin Hood, the the, the, um, the Disney Robin Hood down. That was like my first West End, proper West End film. Went going down with my parents and there were buskers. And, and, and all that kind of stuff is, is basically kind of like you, for a Londoner, London is their small town. Mm. It's just a very big small town uh i mean well like i mean rivers of london was a massive bestseller i mean it's it, and it's sold really well all over the world um and uh now we're, we're sort of we're on book eight of these series and they, they follow peter grant who uh is sort of uh he's a uh, seconded to the, la- the last officially sanctioned english wizard um who is uh, working wizard. for the british wizard for he's working for the metropolitan police uh thomas nightingale um who is uh, one of my favourite book characters, <laughs> um, and and they're so fun. And I just sort of I was wondering about how you came up with this. I well, I mean, there's a flippant answer to that. I was desperate. <laughs> um, I needed money. I was going bankrupt, and I was working at Waterstones, running the crime and the science fiction section. So. Uh, I used to make this joke, which no one gets anymore, which is, oh, why take two genres into the shower, you see? But you have to be over 40 to find that funny. <laughs> um, but somebody's laughing. I guarantee <laughs> listening to this has found that funny. It's yeah. one person. Um, I So I, did, I was looking around in ideas that I had rummaging around in my head for various story ideas, and one popped out, and it was called Magic Cops. 
and it was a television idea I had, which was basically, you know, what it says on the tin. It was going to be mag- <laughs> magic cops, cops. That, cops that did magic. <laughs> and I quite like the idea of um, of kind of working class magic, the idea of people who kind of turn up and go, oh, God, not enough of Balrog, kind of. <laughs> and I, I always thought of it, I always thought of it as Gan- what happens if Gandalf joins the Sweeney. You see, that <laughs> You're was just more. really jaded. <laughs> well, you know, just like it's the day of work. It's yeah. Like, you know, and, and then... I, I started adapting it because prose is a different medium from television. Mm. That um, you were writing for for, um, for Doctor Who. Uh, yeah, back in the day, mm. but well, before it was fashionable. <laughs> and um, I uh, and I, I kind of like d- adapted it, and then just one day Peter Grant walked into my head, mm. and I wrote the first five pages. And I just knew that it was I had something hot, mm. and it was just a question of sitting down and then writing. You know the full ninety six thousand words, yeah. And then I would be able to. I knew I was going to be able to sell it to an agent and a publisher. I didn't know it was going to be so successful. <laughs> I thought it was going to be, you know, a, a good solid mid list fantasy book. That's what I thought. Yeah, I was thinking that. Like, I think there's a good measure for fantasy novelists when you know you've sort of inverted commas made it. Uh, when someone online has made a wiki uh, website for your books, and there's now the Follypedia, which is uh, yes, but you do know there's like a Jane Austenpedia as well. Yeah, well, she, she's pretty famous too. You know, <laughs> <laughs> she kind of made it. It's not just fantasy writing. <laughs> no, like. <laughs> no, but I think like when you've got fans who are willing to sort of extensively uh, sort of map and document. Uh, you know the histories of characters and stuff like that um, well the thing we found about the books is they don't sell to the audience we thought they were going to sell so we thought it was going to sell exclusively to that audience mm. but no it's a very general audience that spread when I go on tour I'm meeting people from all over are, are you surprised by uh, say like people like myself who may have never been to London or uh, not from the UK who love these books and love the, the setting so much well, given that even Scottish people like them, <laughs> they must know, be all right. They must they must have a wider <laughs> appeal, given that you know London is the great Satan in the cosmology of Scotland. So, um, I yeah. So no, not really. I like books about foreign places, mm. so I completely understand. There's nothing quite like getting a good crime story set in a foreign country mm. because you think you're like you're learning something, and there's a horrible murder. You know <laughs> what could be better? And I was wondering how you go about building a world like this when just by the very nature of fantasy you kind of have access to all the toys you could possibly want um that you are setting your own limitations about you know what is logical and what isn't in your own universe well i mean part of it's like i have my personal preference for what i think i want in my fantasy world so that creates a kind of one level of 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 restrictions so mm. you know i like certain things so you're gonna you like get maps. those things yeah i like maps i like logical magical systems but i also like whimsy mm. so i wanted a system basically a sort of background where i could have both yeah so whereas the kind of magic that peter and nightingale do is is very formalistic i mean in codified by an isaac newton so you know it's that kind of a magic where it's like lots of um, rules and stuff like that, and there are the limit. You know, I have very strict limitations. We we actually follow the the law of therm- thermodynamics, so you can't create things out of nothing. You can't, and you can't abolish things mm. because the because of the energy constraints. And then I have my my rivers and my fae who could do th- extraordinary things out of whimsy, so that I can have a bit of sort of stardust magic, so like, <laughs> like pixie dust magic that can be sprinkled over things. And and so I, I basically just aim to have my cake and eat it. Yeah. 
that's what I have. So I can have both. I go, what do I want? And then I just strive towards making it. I make my, I make quite a lot of it up as I go along. Really? As needed. When I finish the story. The story is the most important thing. Mm. You then build the, you build the story and you build the kind of world around the story. I mean, well, you mentioned uh, people working in a world that isn't ours. And this London is very recognisable, I think, for people living in this moment right now, um, but also people uh, living in in the UK or even really any major city. Um, And uh, could you just sort of talk a bit um, about the some of the topics you're talking about in in this eighth installment just because um particularly the uh uh terence skinner our uh our silicon valley uh tech bro who's our sort of our big villain um can you sort of can you talk I'm a little bit i'm not sure he's the villain <laughs> I, I, I don't want to spoil I, anything I, for I, anyone I, I didn't think of him as the villain <laughs> misunderstood that's terence skinner <laughs> I yeah well I I don't really think of like I'm uh, in terms of issues. Mm. I just think oh I need this story and I thought and uh, often the stories start with either a, a story idea or they start with an area that I want to look at or they start with just a vague scene that I want to put in. <laughs> really? Sometime. Yeah, I started books or I have a title. Mm-hmm. The second book is called Moon Over Soho and I just had the title. Mm. I had no idea why I was in Soho and then I thought, well, it's got to do with jazz. You see, and then you build up. So Moon Over Soho is a good example. I had the title which comes from uh, the Threepenny Opera. It's one of the tracks of the Threepenny Opera. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, okay, it's in Soho and I don't want to do werewolves. So what else happens in Soho? <laughs> And I thought, jazz, jazz happens in Soho. And of course, I had Peter's dad's background. Mm. So I thought, right, this is my chance to look at Peter's dad's background and his relationship with his father uh, and and with jazz. I, I wanted a story, do a story where you have a murder in the, the most expensive bit of real estate in London. And that was the hanging tree mm. because you start in number one Hyde Park, which is the most pointless piece of architecture <laughs> has ever been built in this country whatsoever there's other authors that have used i'm thinking like particularly perhaps uh, i mean there's the china mayville and there's also uh neil gaiman um who have used london as a setting for uh of london equivalents like settings for um fantasy books um and uh reading this book i was thinking about um never wear a little bit just because of that uh, the way he uses location and then um, embodies them in a person. So like that enjoys Islington, for example, and never were. I read an interview with him and he was saying that it actually, uh, it was, a, the sequel was born of anger in terms of how uh, certain things that had changed about London um, since he wrote Neverwhere. And uh, do you feel angry at all about some things and yeah. how they operate in London? Yeah. Like, does I, it feed I, into I, your writing? Uh, my anger is more, uh, I don't know, London is a huge city. It's always been a, a bit of a mess. Mm. It's never been a coherent city. Um, and Londoners have never allowed the the establishment to really get control. I think the, we're really at the point where, I think a couple of points in the 19th century and now we're at the point where, where the, the gentry have made a concerted effort to seize control of London mm. and take it away from the people that live there. Um, but it never really lasts for long, and I, I feel we'll have some more riots and drive them out sooner or later. Really? Um, there, there, yeah, you, you see, can see that from the concerted waves of efforts to try and drive the working class out of London. You've got, got things like, for example, Charing Cross Road was built to demolish St Giles, St Giles Rookery. They, these people were not, these people were not rehoused. 
nor were the people who were driven out by the building of the Metropolitan Line. None of these people were ever compensated or rehoused. They were just driven out. And then we got slightly more humane in the in the 1920s and 30s and 40s when we started shifting people out of out of London into the new towns and stuff like that. And the 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 bedroom tax is a particularly mean spirited drive to drive poor Londoners out of London. Mm. Um, and I don't think anyone's kind of thinking to themselves and rubbing their hands in a kind of Victorian villain's glee, going, aha, we shall drive the poor out of London. <laughs> but, you know, they don't care. Yeah. And what the problem for London is, is that the rest of the country, is London is used as a scapegoat for the rest of the country. So you, you go around the rest of the country and go, oh, London, London, London. But actually, the establishment doesn't care about London it always makes you 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 could got a little taste of that when Extinction Rebellion tried to do a dis, uh, thing on the train, yes. when they tried to superglue themselves to a commuter train, yeah, as if the people on the commuter train were the the people who were getting in the way of environmental change, and also using public transport, which yes. is surely something everyone should be encouraged to do. I mean, if you're listening to me, Extinction Rebellion, go out to those villages around London where all the rich and influential people live, and superglue yourself to the SUVs. That would be a much more appropriate. <laughs> I mean, with things. <laughs> Things like things like this, say like uh, Extinction Rebellion or um, things like Brexit, uh, you know, do you ever consider putting these problems that are very much on the in our minds in our London in your your fiction? No, I I, I don't do what's known as fantastic racism or fant- <laughs> I, I, I What I, I was not going to do is like do this refugee stories by focusing on elves or something who've mm. been thrown out of fairyland. If I do those stories, I will do them by having refugees from. Syria if I was to do that Um, but I wouldn't do it I wouldn't sit down and and aim to do it I don't think I don't think it's my place to do that right I think there are plenty of people with their own stories who actually have lived those experiences who should be given space to express them I don't think it's my place to 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 write into the experience. I to reflect it yes because it is part of London Mm. so to reflect it in the same way I reflect the other parts of London other good and bad bits of London and and to exp- reflect the experiences of of the mad diversity of the city yes but I don't think it's my place to be going oh look I shall make it so that magic becomes I don't know an analogy for for drug addiction or something what you were saying about reflecting the the diversity of London that's one of the wonderful things so one one of many wonderful things about these books is that how very uh true to form when I did finally arrive in London uh the London I saw on the page is very much one that I could uh, recognize and 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 particularly with Peter and Peter is mixed race um he's working class um and his mother's she's from Sierra, Sierra so, Leone yeah, yes. yeah and you have said quite a lot about this um before but uh you know talking about how uh say like US publishers have handled Peter um in terms of how he's well, funny, it's the covers. The it's covers, actually, it's visual it's representation. They, they, they. Well, it's so much right, which just bugger it up. Yeah. And and it was one of those things. I what I I know what happened. I found out what happened is basically, uh, in publishing, especially when you're a first author, there's a limited budget for the cover. Mm. So what what happened was they went out to find a mixed race actor to shoot a picture of holding a gun because they're Americans and you can't have a thriller cover without someone holding a gun. <laughs> and they went and got someone who looked... See, because he he's not a villain, mm. there's only two main 
um, two main black stereotypes in America f- who aren't villains, and that's the the big hulking guy who's on your side, and and the skinny chattermouth yeah, who's yeah. on your side. And they went out and got a big hulking guy with no neck, and they they, they shot him, and then it just looked really stupid. <laughs> it didn't look like and, Peter. And then that was, and then just to compound it, they they decided to black out him completely, which just was just. I don't even know why they did that. And there was no more money for another cover. Mm. So I, I just said, that's terrible cover. But there's nothing you can do when you're first starting out as an author. You yeah. don't get any say, in, especially in America, if you're a British author, mm. in what the covers look like. You've been admirably vocal about publishing and uh, how publishing handles uh, diversity and um, badly, b- badly, uh, and uh, particularly I'm thinking back. Uh, and the media in general. As a Londoner, right? It's very striking when you go into these national institutions like publishing and the BBC and, and, the, and the media and the press, right? You go in and how white they are mm. compared to London. Yeah. Because you go to a mixed school, you go live in a mixed area, you have lots of mixed friends, and you go into these, suddenly you walk into the BBC and the only black people, well, this is 1988 when I first walked into the BBC, it might have changed a bit. The only black people are the people who are working in the canteen and on the door. And literally, that is what you do. And in publishing, it's it's the same. It's all people from, from Hastings <laughs> and, I don't know, places outside the M25. And they're lovely people, but they're not the most diverse group. No. Do you think there's anything, I mean, there's uh, sometimes a lot of publishers have started bringing in things like sensitivity readers and stuff like that. I mean, how do you feel about the, the, those sorts of things? Do you think it's I think working? I think, it's, I think, I think, well, I think they, they're going to have to throw stuff at a wall until some of it works, basically. Yeah. Sensitivity readers, I think they should be uh, offered mm-hmm. to authors. Yeah. If you want them, I think there's not, nothing does never hurts if you're doing a subject that you're not actually intimately in, in, uh, acquainted with yourself to have someone who is read it for you. What you don't want is a kind of checklist mm. because that doesn't matter. And the thing is, is we can deal with this problem very simply. We just have more non-white people writing books and then we don't have to have a worry about this. Well, that's what again. I always feel about sensitivity readers. It's like, why don't you hire those people to work at the publisher all the time? Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it, this is very tangentially involved, but I, I just I, I found it interesting. Um, I actually, it took me a very long time to realise that uh, your brother is David Aranovich. Really? <laughs> Even though you got the same last name and you don't look too dissimilar. Yeah, yes. Um, Most people think I'm him half the time. <laughs> he know? still gets tweets from people congratulating one of the books that he's writing. Yeah. So. <laughs> I mean, I, I was uh, I was reading an interview with him about uh, Party Animals, which is a sort of book about your family. Yes, right? lovely book. Yeah. Well, I so I read this uh, interview with him, and he was saying that he had not shown you the book, and it was sort of at the state. You know, he's doing interviews for it, so it was quite a late stage. I mean, he said you can interpret it quite aggressively, um, which is that this is my attempt to take their parents away from my siblings. But I didn't want to invite a problem that didn't exist. And I thought that was really interesting in a family where you'd have multiple authors about whether they're, you know, what is the line between it, you as no, an author no, and as see, a brother? This, this is this is this is a non-fiction thing, right? Yeah. This idea that he could take my parents away from me by writing <laughs> yeah. a book about it. <laughs> what? Is this a pretension of non-fiction writing? Yeah, this is like, <laughs> can't take your, he can't take my parents away. I mean, I, I, I don't think it. 
I, it, I just don't even understand the concept of what you know. It's a sort of very, it's a very Sunday supplement thing. It's kind of like, <laughs> yeah, I feel like my parents were taken away by this statement. No, I, I was great because I, I mean, I only appear in it as a two-year-old, mm. so I come up completely unscathed personally, <laughs> right? But it was fascinating yeah. about uh, all the background stuff about my father that I didn't know and about my mother. I mean, I knew some of it, but I missed a lot of the 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 relatives. I missed a lot of the very intense party stuff because by the time I was around it wasn't so much they were drifting away from the party but the party was mellowing out I is mean, it the party we're talking about is the communist party yes sorry yes <laughs> when you're from a family like mine there is only the party the party right? and and people are either in the party or they're not in the party oh that's so interesting then because I was wondering whether there were any lines between how say Ben the author uh, would react to a, a book about his own family or Ben the brother because he, he seemed a little bit worried at that point well, in that yeah because he is because he got a lot of stick from from my mum's friends mm. and my dad's friends they got a lot of stick it's, it's a bit like religion they you know my mum had had communism the same way other people have religion mm. it was a set of rules you did this was bad that was good you know, good people did this, good people believed that, bad people believed this. My mum was very, very forthright <laughs> about the use of uh, violence to overthrow capitalism. She was very disappointed, I think, in the Communist Party when it drifted into kind of political... The, the gentler end. <laughs> the gentler end. I, I don't know. Sometimes, you see, it was very hard to tell with my mum. Mm. To her dying day, she claimed not to know the meaning of the word sarcasm. But we think she might have been sarcastic when she was saying it. But we never caught her out. <laughs> so I have to then ask, I mean, now we're at the, you know, we've got book eight now. Um, and uh, where do you go from here in terms of pizza? I mean, like, I, I don't want to spoil it in terms of where it's all left off. And there's a lot for, you know, it's, a, it's an open end. You know, we're definitely getting a book nine, I'm guessing. Uh-huh. You're going to go up for 10 Contracted. or 12? Contracted. Contracted. <laughs> yes. So do you have your, you were mentioning that you go from title first to, to perhaps. No, no, sometimes. Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes an idea. a location, sometimes an idea. Well, I was actually wondering about locations. Where, where else in London? And where well, you the, the next one, the next one I was going to do was going to be Golders Green and Canals. I don't know mm. why, mm. but for some reason it's veered off. Uh, at least part of it has veered off to Manchester, which caught me by oh. surprise. Yeah, so I went, oh, okay. Um, but probably 70s Manchester, so I'm not sure Great. I'll have to do that much research because Manchester's changed quite a bit. Um, and the next one after that is Aberdeen. Possibly the most exciting news of uh, my year is um, that you are adapting Rivers of London with Nick Frost and Simon Pegg. And uh, when I found out about that, I was like, yes, they're sufficiently nerdy enough to do a good job. Oh, very, very nerdy. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, it was like a warm bath. I just go, like, after after dealing with other television companies and they, they, they don't really understand what you're talking about, yeah. I just sat down with Nick Frost and we just nerded out for about 15 15 minutes. Um, yeah, they're mad. Uh, they've hired equally mad people, so I fit in. You're pretty excited. Perfectly well, yes. Nerdy mad people. <laughs> it's going to be very expensive. It's going to be very difficult to finance. So it's still it's still uncertain as to whether it will actually happen, but we're going to give it a good shot. That was Ben Aronovich. False Value is published by Galantz. After the break, we'll be heading back to the 16th century and the woman of the moment, Hilary Mantel. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. 
Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to the Guardian Books podcast. Hilary Mantel may have had plenty of time to brace herself for success, as she quipped in the Guardian last year, but what a success it is. After eight long years, Mantel is back with the final part of her Cromwell trilogy, The Mirror and the Light. Fans gave her the Harry Potter treatment, queuing at midnight to get hold of her latest 900-page literary blockbuster. So, Sean, what's it like? Oh, it's really, really good. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sort of one of those people that has been waiting for eight years uh, between uh, Bring Up the Bodies and, and this. Only um, a couple. Yeah, only a couple, basically. <laughs> I only, only, uh, it was one of those books I really vividly remember when Wolf Hall came out and... Um, I was working in a bookshop then and we got an advanced reading copy of of it and I know the bookseller that still has the copy of that proof like she holds onto it like such an like achievement. I knew this was good before <laughs> everyone else knew it was good. Um, and so, uh, but then it, 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 it sold huge amounts and so I never really read it because it wasn't anything I ever really had to recommend to people. I sort of Because they to, came in asking for it. They just would want it, yeah. you know. Mm. Um, and I always sort of viewed it as something kind of a amazing and very daunting in that it was quite a hefty book and I knew it was historical fiction which I didn't really read much of at the time um, and the fact that so many people came in for it though made me think like oh this is quite strange like this is almost what you would expect for a commercial novel and this is very much not sort of a uh, you know a thriller a commercial thriller or something but it it's so amazing now having read the most of the third that, that there's this really um, you really notice that um when you think back to like sort of great reading experiences that you've had, usually you can sort of lump them into different categories and you can say, well, I really enjoyed this book because um, it is a, a compulsive read. And then I really enjoyed this book because of the skill that is shown in this book because, you know, the, the writing is beautiful um, and uh, I enjoyed it simply for the quality and skill shown. Yeah, the prose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you get a book like this where it's both at the same time, uh, it's, it's kind of amazing to have a reading experience when you're constantly aware while, while you're reading how much you're enjoying yourself. <laughs> and not only that, but also you're part of this massive kind of phenomenon. There's people yes. all over the country having the same reading experience. Yes, and I, I don't know what it was like for people. I guess it wouldn't have been this, the same for Wolf Hall in that I think uh, perhaps, uh, you know, that was a bit, you know, there was some sort of word of mouth still happening amongst readers. And oh, then, it was slower to build, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, and then Booker Prize win, and then the second book comes out. Maybe by the second book there was some sort of sense of phenomena, but then with an eight-year wait, um, it's kind of fantastic to have such a, a big book and an accomplished book and also have a book that had huge expectations riding on it and to have it meet those expectations and by doing so surpass them is kind of a, a really amazing thing. Um, and 
yeah, having a book that you're reading and enjoying and being aware that you're enjoying it. I haven't had that for such a long time. Um, and she like Mantel's so skilled in, in, and I think part of it perhaps is she has talked about this, her use of the present tense to insert some sort of sense of urgency into a story where we know where it's going. You know, there's no spoilers. We know that Thomas Cromwell is, is beheaded <laughs> at the Tower of London and we know we're getting there. But the fact that she can make it compulsive to return to and see how she's going to take you there is just like so so incredible and um, it's cut from the same cloth it's the same present tense narration it's the same very much being inside his head it's yes exactly and you are constantly i think like part of part of the joy of it is that we are aware of cromwell as a historical figure and how he's taught in education and in schools and you know what we can infer from his character and you know he's the villain but when you are inside his head it's you absolutely understand his reasoning and it does feel very uh unjust when he is uh, finally arrested and and uh it's a put in uh, in in isolation and it's basically the probably about the last 200 pages of this book um is uh him uh answering uh, to interrogators um and there's this beautiful sort of dialogue back and forth like really witty and cutting and uh lots of backstabbing happening uh between all these figures that have been popping up throughout all the books who are now basically trying to get Cromwell uh out of the picture so they can sort of assume bits of his power um and because uh, there's, there's very much there's a focus on on his his trial such as it was and and his it's that's the balance of the book is it yeah so it, it's set over the last four years of his life and then um there's this uh, i think it's like 48 days he spent in the tower of london and um uh it's just such beautiful writing in that you you are constantly reminded of uh moments from the previous books um moments in earlier in his life that we didn't know about um and i mean it's not a spoiler certainly but just uh in terms of how she writes the final seconds of his life on the last couple of pages um there's a beautiful use of the very first scene from the first book that comes back um and that that uh, that, that amazing first line, so now get up, um, which was, I loved that when they announced this book and there was that teaser billboard that was put in the middle of London and everyone lost their mind because <laughs> it, it said nothing, but it said, so now get up. And everyone immediately knew that we were going to find out when this book was coming out. And to see that line come back uh, in the final moments inside his head, um, you know, it's it's a really emotional and affecting, affecting scene, um, even though... You know, you know, this was a real man, and it, it, I feel the emotional attachment to him like I would like a best loved character, um, a fictional character. Um, so yeah, it's it's a kind of a remarkable achievement, and I, like I, I have been constantly taking photos of pages. This is what I do instead of underlining things in books. I take photos of pages so I can remember passages, and my phone is now filled of of pictures of pages in this book. Um, but just like just as an example, if you haven't read Mantel, just small moments like this. When he was an infant, his sister Cat used to tell him the bells made the time. When the hour strikes and the music shivers in the air, you have the best of it, and what's left is like the sucked plum stone on on the side of a plate. Isn't that there just go, beautiful? Yes. Like, oh, she's just so so uh, wonderful. And this is from a moment when he's uh, when uh, Cromwell is in the tower. He says, July and the nights are short. When the light begins to fade, he sends the boy out again to find his supper while he thinks of heaven and hell. 
When he pictures hell, he can only think of a cold place, a wasteland, a wharf, a marsh, a landing stage, water distantly boiling, and then the boiling coming nearer. This is how it will be, not pain itself, but the constant apprehension of pain, the constant apprehension of fault, the knowledge that you are going to be punished for something you couldn't help and didn't even know was wrong, and the discord in hell will be constant, repeating forever and ever, a violent argument being carried on in the next room. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, and there's 900 pages of it. I mean, <laughs> I what's it like having that kind of experience at that kind of scale? Well, do you know what? Like yesterday, I, so I went and bought my book. This is how much I love it. I get sent free books all the time and I went and bought a book. Um, and uh, I went into the shop and uh, picked it up and realised I haven't held a book that big. And this is even including Duck's New Report, which was a paperback. And so it was kind of a bit more flexible. But I haven't held a book that big since I think the fifth Harry Potter book and it is actually kind of it's comparable. that chunky it's that chunky mm. um and so i yeah i i, I do understand like I, I i'm very not uh i'm not wedded to e-readers or anything like that or print books either i'm i'm romantic about these things it's more about convenience um but actually the uh the physical book is a very beautiful thing and i'm quite glad that i have it and yeah you do need to break the spine <laughs> <laughs> so do you think there's any kind of route any kind of opening any possibility of another one a sequel no no this is it and she has actually said that she that uh, some people have asked her to write about elizabeth um and uh sort of last of uh, everything but she is like no nah, not interested done finished yeah. she's arrived like, at the point where she set yeah. off from and that's it she's yeah and i think like she came into wolf hall and all of these books because she was interested in cromwell as the man rather than the period or uh you know the setting it, it was she wanted to write about cromwell and she initially pictured it as one book and then now it's become three massive books um but uh i i think like that that's actually a very good thing that that's her judgment is that you know when, when you have such a a masterful portrait of a man's character like this you kind of go okay well if you don't find elizabeth interesting then you know <laughs> let's wait and to see who Something you else. find interesting yeah, sure. <laughs> and so i guess the other the fifty thousand pound question is will it win the book of prize oh it's got to and i kind of feel bad for everyone that's long listed for the book of this year because they're just gonna be like oh great i'm off against that i mean it will be a real shock if it doesn't um but, that's it she's got it in the bag yeah i mean you know three for three you know. <laughs> unprecedented yeah and, and, and that's all for this week with that triumph to come next week we'll be returning to the 16th century with toby ferris who'll tell us about his pursuit of the dutch master peter bruegel we'd love to hear your thoughts about fantastical london or thomas cromwell on twitter at guardian books or on the podcast page and you can always subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts but for now from me richard lee me sean kane and our producer esther Apokujeni, thanks for listening and goodbye for more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.